You are listening to the Teaching Little Brains podcast with Sarah Nickaruk, episode 36. Hello, teacher brain. Before we start, let's take 10 seconds to just stop and listen to the sounds around you. If it is safe to do so, close your eyes. And if not, just kind of direct your brain to noticing the sounds that are surrounding you. We're going to do it for 10 seconds. So what kind of sounds did you hear? Was there anything in there that you noticed in particular? Anything that stood out to you? We are surrounded by sounds of all kinds all day long. So what's your favorite sound? One that really lifts your spirits and lightens your heart. Maybe even gives you tingles or goosebumps. One that brings a smile to your face every time you hear it. Chances are, hopefully... You can name a few things in that fit that category. Baby giggles, waterfalls, wind chimes, certain musical instruments, a cat's purr, rustling of leaves in the breeze. Maybe you have a favorite sound that when you hear it, it it stimulates all those reactions, the smile, the heightened emotion, maybe even tingles um, in your brain and body. And that's, we're going to talk about that phenomenon next week. But what about the other end of the spectrum? What's your least favorite sound? One that sends shivers down your spine, that makes you grit your teeth or cringe and plug your ears. Chances are you're also able to name a few unpleasant sounds that you really don't like. And it's likely that they are sounds that annoy other people as well. Things that are like universally disturbing, (laughs) like the scraping of a fork on a plate or nails on a chalkboard or screaming babies. Though for me, the whining is way worse than the screaming. Um, Clicking pens, jingling change in someone's pocket, grinding teeth, tapping pencils on the table. Is there a sound though that physically and neurologically, as it turns out, triggers you? And what I mean by trigger is not just like a severe even annoyance or displeasure. I'm talking like a sound that rocks you to your core, that kicks up your fight or flight response and enrages you and or distresses you. It probably illogically and likely it's a commonplace sound that most other people don't even notice or can seemingly ignore, such as someone's breathing or chewing. But it can be impairing to your daily life. And it doesn't need to be everybody's chewing. It could just be one person's chewing. And often it is the person, one of the people that you're closest with. And if you were easily able to think of a triggering sound that fits that description, one that really sends you to the extreme, like over the edge, it distresses you or impairs you or debilitates you, or maybe you're thinking of someone you know and love then you or they may experience, because I hate to use the term suffer, although by the end of this, I probably will because it's one of those things. Um, You may experience something called misophonia. Misophonia is, according to the leading study conducted in 2017 by Sukhbinder Kumar and his team, an effective, effective sound processing disorder characterized by the experience of strong negative emotions anger and anxiety in response to everyday sounds, such as those generated by other people's eating, drinking, chewing, and breathing. 
And up until very recently, there had been limited research conducted on misophonia. The problem being that misophonia does not feature in any neurological or psychiatric classification of disorders and has not yet been fully recognized as its own distinctive disorder, which makes it tricky to access funding to do the research around it. It's not like tinnitus, which is the ringing in your ear. It's not phonophobia. It's not anxiety. It's not OCD or other disorders, but it can overlap and co-occur with those. So people with misophonia, also called misophonics, experience a heightened autonomic nervous system response, like the fight or flight response to specific trigger sounds of any decibel, but often, uh, usually these are like the sound, the soft sounds. Um, the areas of their brain responsible for noticing stimuli and paying attention to them go into hyperdrive. That then leads to higher activity in other areas responsible for long-term memory, fear, and emotional regulation, suggesting that people with misophonia, misophonia aren't processing these particular sounds the way they should. So misophonics are not triggered by all sounds, but rather very specific, often commonplace sounds that activate their sympathetic nervous system and a part of their brain called the bilateral anterior insular cortex, which um, pairs the bodily experience of emotion with a stimulus. In this case, the negative meaning, and therefore negative emotional response, to the trigger. And because... It has been found that the symptoms of misophonia start early in life, like five years old, like early, like early, early, zero to five. It was hypothesized by Kumar and his team during their study that there would be structural differences in the brains of people with misophonia compared to the control group. And in fact, they found that misophonics have higher myelination in the gray matter of the ventromedial area of the prefrontal cortex. Myelin speeds up communication in the brain. So with hypermyelination, now the parts responsible for assigning the meaning to the sound are hyperconnected. So that sound stimulates instant reaction and takes over the thinking part of the brain of, in the prefrontal cortex. So what this means is that misophonia is a neurological disorder. Responses to trigger sounds for misophonics are not simply like dramatic, disproportionate emotional overreactions. They're brain-based disproportionate emotional overreactions. In other words, they can experience the same level of anxiety as they would in a life-threatening situation when their friend is eating chips. And in fact, there's even visual processing involved as well to the point where misophonics begin to experience the same bodily reactions they normally do to a trigger sound simply by seeing the visual stimulus um, that would create that sound. So even a picture of the chips that, that would represent the trigger sound can set them off without their, e their even needing to actually hear the sound itself. I got so intrigued by this condition when I was researching for this episode, um, hence why I was late getting it out to you. My apologies. I just kept wanting to learn more and more and more. So I kept like looking stuff up and I had so many questions and probably many of the same questions that you're asking yourself right now. But one of my questions was, what are the most common trigger sounds for misophonics? Like, 
like I said, they are often commonplace, mundane, run-of-the-mill, everyday sounds that you aren't likely triggered by, at least not to this extent. According to research done in 2016, the most common trigger sounds include, and these are regardless of decibel, again, they can be loud or quiet. So chewing, throat clearing, slurping, finger tapping, foot shuffling, keyboard tapping, and pen clicking. And anecdotal reports from people who have identified themselves as mesophonics also add breathing, um, low sounds or voices, and rain taps on the window, among others. And someone with misophonia sitting in a crowded movie theater, for example, next to someone who is breathing heavily in their, to their mind, would be so distracted distracted by that neighbor's breathing that they would not be able to focus on anything happening on the screen. Their first instinct would be to escape the situation. They're in survival brain. They're in fight or flight. And when unable to do so, would likely become so enraged by the breathing that they're crawling in their skin, squirming in their seat, wanting to scream or hit that person and wanting to yell like, can't somebody do something about this guy's breathing? It's ruining the movie for all of us. And on top of that, the perceived obliviousness of the rest of the audience only adds intensity to the experience and power to the emotion and heightens the distracting thoughts. Now, imagine the difference between an adult going through that experience and a child. So another question I has I had was how would I know if one of the little brains in my class had misophonia and what could I do? So when a trigger sound is detected, people with misophonia experience experience immediate symptoms that can vary in severity but typically include in the reports I've heard like they get they're enraged like 0 to 0 to 100 in a split millisecond. So muscle tension, headaches, stomach issues, emotional distress, the urge to flee, anger, disgust, rage, panic, anxiety, feelings of inadequacy, and they worry. They have difficulty focusing. They blame others and themselves. They try to escape, avoid, or withdraw from others. They may ask the person to stop the noise, and sometimes not in the most friendly way, because remember, they're in a state of distress and they got there in the space the hair fraction of a second. And they may experience physical aggression toward themselves, others, or objects. They may storm out. They may throw things. They may yell at other people and lose control. And afterwards, they mostly feel guilty because they realize they know cognitively that it's not the other person's fault. And they think that something's wrong with them because they can't control themselves. So recognizing these responses and behaviors is the first step, as with everything. Then, and we often overlook this step, we can talk to them. We can ask them. So the good news is that kids often have a less of a hard time just saying what's bothering them than we do as adults. So if someone's making a noise they don't like, they'll probably just ask that person to stop. And if the request seems out of proportion to the stimulus, that may be a clue. But we can, we can ask, like, was that sound bothering you? What did you feel in your body? What thoughts and urges did you, it caused you to have? So remember, we want to seek to understand. If it is truly, if it is truly misophonia, then we need to remember that it is beyond their control. It's, their, it's happening in their brain. It's not their conscious choice. 
So there are actually some questionnaires that you can complete to help determine whether or not misophonia is at play. And um, I've linked a sample questionnaire in the show notes. It's a website. Um, the cause of misophonia has not yet been determined. And as I mentioned, there's little research being conducted, um, at least like official peer reviewed research on a wide scale funded research. As such, viable treatment options have not officially been identified. However, psychologists and practitioners are implementing various tools and techniques with their patients and reporting varying degrees of, of anecdotal success around treatment and coping measures, um, mostly coping measures. So they're try they've tried exposure therapy, like you do with phobias, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, distress tolerance skills, breath work, meditation, distraction, chewing gum, earplugs, listening to music, etc., and and getting unstuck from their thoughts because sometimes people with misophonia can get caught up in their heads and think that the person is doing it on purpose even though they know cognitively that and logically that that is not true. When they're in that survival brain, thinking shut down. They're not seeing things clearly. So due to the heightened fight or flight response and activation of the amygdala and autonomic nervous system, I am very curious to know if tapping would help in treatment, or at least I predict um, in mediation of the physical and emotional responses. And speaking of tapping, um, Sarah Longoria's uh, free five-day program is starting again on October 26th. So if you haven't participated in one of these, I strongly urge you to do it. The registration link is in the show notes. Um, I'm actually starting this with a school, a school-wide initiative to do this. And I just, I know how much of an impact it has made on the thousands of people that have worked with Sarah. And now the hundreds of so people that I have been teaching it to. And uh, it's just amazing. So check it out if you haven't done that yet. So now we notice, we suspect it might be misophonia. What can we do? Well, of course, exercising patients, compassion and empathy are always great starting points. Many people with misophonia report feeling like they're dramatic or they're going crazy because they don't know. It's like there's something wrong with them. They don't understand that it's a it's a brain-based thing. And they want to explode on people that they love and they simultaneously want to and don't want to um, when they make the trigger sound. So all they know is like that sound, they need to get out of there. So when they learn that it is a real thing that they can't control, that someone that something's happening in their brain to cause it, they feel so much better. So just helping mesophonics and others in their lives understand that is a huge first step. And obviously, if possible, avoid exposing yourself or the misophonic to the trigger sound. So misophoniaresearch.com, misophonia-research.com recommends a process of uh, regulate, reason, and reassure, which basically teaches like a um, some coping skills. So there is hope. There, there are management and coping skills that help and um, people with misophonia report that it does get better with age, obviously, um, as you get more mature and learn how to regulate things in real time. But perhaps the best insight I found 
is a video called Breaking the Sound Barrier, Teens with Misophonia, which shares the experience of living with misophonia from the points of view of these teens who have been living with it since they were young. It's how they feel, how it has affected their lives and their relationships, um, their school experience, and what we can do to support them. And they are so intelligent, these kids, so well-spoken. I would highly recommend watching that especially if you suspect or wonder if you or someone you know may have misophonia. But really what it did for me once again is remind me that we really have no idea what other people are dealing with at any point in time. So just to be kind, be compassionate, be empathetic, be curious, and be supportive and ask how we can help. So that's what I have for you today. It was super fascinating to me. Um, If you want to learn more, I encourage you to go do some more research. Um, Next week, we'll talk about the the upside of uh, extreme emotional responses. And uh, until then, you have been listening to the Teaching Little Brains podcast with Sarah Nickerak. Bye for now.